Alleluia. Christ is risen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Amen. My name is David Sunday. I'm one of the pastors here at New Covenant, and it's a joy for me to welcome you as we join with Christians around the world today in celebrating the greatest event that has ever happened in human, human history, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to ask you this morning, do you really believe it? Be honest with yourself. I ask because it's not uncommon for people to wrestle with doubts before settling into the firm truth of Christianity and trusting in it. If we take our faith seriously, and if we are honest with ourselves, most of us know what it's like to struggle with doubt. I certainly do. Even believers wrestle with unbelief. And the good news is that Jesus understands. He is a compassionate Savior who moves toward us in our doubts. More than anything, he wants us to believe in who he is, that he is the resurrected king, the savior of the world. But Jesus doesn't want us to believe that just because the church tells us to believe it. Jesus doesn't want to believe us to believe in him just because your parents told you you should. He doesn't want you to be like the little boy who grew up in the church and was asked what faith is. And the boy answered, Faith is believing what you know isn't true. That's not the response Jesus is looking for. Jesus wants you to look at the evidence carefully. He wants you to listen to his words attentively and come to a personal conviction that he is the one on whom you will stake your hope in this life and in the life to come. So what would it take for you to believe in Jesus this morning? What would it take for you to stake your eternal destiny on him? How would you fill in the, the, the blank to this question? I would believe in Jesus if. I'd believe in Jesus if he wrote my name in the stars above and spoke to me with an audible voice. Or I'd believe in Jesus if he came to my home and showed himself to me face to face. Or I'd believe in Jesus if he healed my loved one's cancer. Or I'd believe in Jesus if he didn't demand so much from those who follow him. I'd believe in Jesus if. What are your conditions? What would it take for you to put your life and your eternal destiny into his hands this morning? Well, Jesus knows what you're thinking right now. And he's ready to meet you where you are. He's not standing at a distance waiting for you to figure it all out. He's not frustrated or annoyed by your questions and concerns. He's not angry with your doubts. 
No, Jesus is moving toward us right now. He's moving toward you. He's moving toward me with arms open wide, ready to reveal himself to every heart that is longing to meet with him for who he really is. And if you want to know what Jesus is like, look at the Gospel of John chapter 20. If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it. To John 20. And if you don't have one with you, there are Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you. Please take one and open it to page 963. If you want to read the Bible more and you don't have one at home, please take this one home with you as a gift from our church. Chapter 20 is the climax of the Gospel of John. John is this disciple who is profoundly aware of Jesus' love for him. And he is telling us in this chapter about the resurrection of Jesus and what it was like to meet him the first time after he rose from the dead. And you need to understand that most of these disciples had blown it badly. Just a few days earlier, Jesus was rushed through a mock trial in the middle of the night, and then he was delivered over to a mob who demanded that he be crucified. And in the terror and in the confusion of those moments, most of Jesus' disciples either denied him or they deserted him or they betrayed him. Only a handful stood by him to the bitter end. And now he's here. He's come back from the dead to the ones who deserted, denied, and betrayed him. And they're wondering, what will it be like to meet him? I can imagine them fearing the worst. Will he hate us? Will he shame us? Will he no longer want to have anything to do with us after we've treated him like this? Will we get a beautiful window into the heart of Jesus for his fearful, faltering disciples in verse 19 of John 20? It says, When it was evening on that first day of the week, The disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus belongs to another world now. Locked doors are no barrier to his entry. But he still belongs to this world, too. They can recognize him. They know his voice. And the very first words out of his voice are not words of scorn, or division, derision, or scolding. He speaks peace to their hearts, just as he had promised them in John 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And Jesus repeats the same words again in verse 21. He says, peace be with you. He's reassuring them that God did not send him into the world to condemn the world. God sent him into the world to save the world, to bring peace, to bring wholeness, to bring a cessation of hostilities, to bring reconciliation to those who had been estranged, to bring a restoration of right relationship with God, peace with God, peace with one another, peace within That's the gift the risen Jesus wants to impart to his disciples. And look at the effect their resurrected king of peace has on their hearts in verse 20. We read there, So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They were glad. That is, 
those of them who were there that night rejoiced. Those of them who were there were glad. But there's one disciple who is noticeably absent. Why he decided not to gather with the rest of the, the disciples that first Easter night, we're not told. Maybe he was so shattered by the sight of Jesus' crucifixion, he had to go off by himself for a while to grieve. But for whatever reason, not all of the apostles were there that first Easter night, and his absence left him at a disadvantage. Let's read about it in verses 24 and 25. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas hasn't seen the risen Christ and he insists that he will never believe unless he does. And that's the first scene in our text this morning. Not seeing and unbelieving. It doesn't matter to Thomas what the other apostles are saying. He's not going to take Peter's word for it. It doesn't matter that John ran and went into the tomb and saw that the body of Jesus was missing. The testimony of Mary Magdalene, who had spoken with the risen Lord and all his closest friends, all of this is irrelevant to him at this moment. As he listens to their excitement, Thomas isn't feeling it. He's determined, I'm not going to get swept away into this enthusiasm. And maybe he's feeling a twinge of resentment that they are claiming to have experienced something wonderful and he was left out. In his frustration, in his skepticism, Thomas blurts out, unless I see the nail holes in his hands, put my finger into the nail holes and stick my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And his words there give us insight into the horror his eyes had seen. This is the only place in the Gospels where we actually read of the nails of Jesus' crucifixion. The Bible actually doesn't give us a lot of physical details about the crucifixion. What we learn about the gruesomeness of crucifixion comes from other sources. But Thomas can't forget those nails. He's probably still hearing the hammer blows ringing in his ears. When he tries to go to sleep at night, he's tormented by nightmares as the tortured scenes refuse to give him rest. It was so gruesome, so traumatic, Thomas cannot imagine how it could be possible that the same Jesus who suffered such atrocities on Friday should now be alive on Sunday. So Thomas's doubts are understandable but they're not commendable. Jesus had spoken often about the fact that he would be crucified and then he would be raised from the dead. But none of his disciples were expecting the resurre resurrection. None of them believed the words of Jesus. As John tells us back in verse 9, they did not yet understand the scripture 
that he must rise from the dead. For Thomas, that first Easter night, the scriptures that testified of the resurrection of the Messiah weren't sinking in. The testimony of his friends and fellow apostles were falling on deaf ears. And the skepticism of his own heart was hardening into a stubborn refusal to believe and to rejoice. And maybe that's where you are today. You see the joy of Christians around you. You see the praise and worship and celebration. But you're not seeing what everyone's so excited about. And you're not believing it. Maybe you're thinking like Thomas this morning. There's no way anyone could be dead and then live, live again. The only way I'll believe that is if I see it with my own eyes. May I ask you to consider something this morning? Would you consider the fact that every day we believe in wonders whose origin we cannot see or explain? What if there really is a God who brings life from the dead? Is it really impossible for you to believe that? I mean, think about it. Think about all the things that most modern skeptics believe in. We look at the world and all that's in it, and most modern skeptics believe that everything came from nothing. We see the order, the symmetry of the universe, the laws of physics and all the wonders, and most modern skeptics believe that all this order has sprung out of chaos, that life has sprung from non-life, that consciousness, our minds, have emerged from mindless matter. Most modern skeptics believe these things. And Glenn Scrivener points out that the only explanation is the only, the, that only the God of Easter can make sense out of such wonders. He writes this, Christians believe that Jesus came to life in that Jerusalem tomb. But atheists must believe all life rose from a grave of nothingness, of mindless physical forces and the primordial soup. More than this, such resurrection miracles must have happened without a life from the dead God to perform them. At this point, we realize that the resurrection of Jesus is not an absurdity. Easter reveals a God who can explain what would otherwise be absurd. Think about that. Let me give you another reason to consider the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, and that is the testimony of history. We know that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses, and as they spread the news, the church of Jesus Christ grew exponentially. Could it have been just a rumor that they were spreading? Could it have been a case of wishful thinking run amok? Well, perhaps. But how many people are willing to die for a rumor. That's exactly what happened. The apostles who spread the good news of Jesus' resurrection were willing to put their lives on the line for this glorious truth. They were thrown into prison. They were beaten. They were stoned. They were beheaded. 
They were crucified upside down. Hundreds, even thousands of Christians died for their faith because they had met their risen Lord and they believed that he had triumphed over death. And isn't that the very thing that our hearts long for? Don't we, be, don't we long to be loved to death by someone? Don't we long to experience a love that triumphs over death? Don't we long to believe that all the beauty and goodness that we see in this world reflects a source that is radiant with beauty and overflowing with generosity? Don't we long for a reversal of everything that is sad and a restoration of all that we've lost in this life and a renewal of life after death? The resurrection of Jesus is the answer to all our deepest longings. So if you find yourself this morning where Thomas was, not seeing and not yet believing, can I encourage you to examine the evidence for yourself? Would you be willing to be persuaded that there is a reality beyond what your eyes can physically see? And that brings me to the second scene in our text. I'm going to call this seeing and believing. Let's read verses 26 through 28. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless. Another version says, stop doubting, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Now, there are two aspects to these verses that I find illuminating. The second is that Jesus came back a week later just for Thomas. Doesn't that tell you something about Jesus' heart? But the first thing is that Jesus let him stew in his doubt for a whole week. <laughs> what was that like? To spend the week in doubt and disbelief while all the other disciples are radiant with joy. Has that ever happened to you? All your friends are excited about something, rejoicing over something, but you're down in the dumps. You're full of self-pity. You're unable to join with them in their joy. Sometimes we need to sit with our doubts and we need to trace them to their ultimate conclusion. We need to grapple with them for a while. We need to consider, if my doubts are a reflection of ultimate reality, where will this lead me? If it's not true that Jesus is Lord of all, if it's not true that Jesus has conquered death, then what will I live for? Who will be the guide of my life? What comfort will I have in the face of my own inevitable death or the death of those I love? If the resurrection is not a reality, then where will I find hope? These are vital questions that we must not ignore or suppress. If you want to explore questions like this, we're offering a 
three-week class beginning this Tuesday night at 6.30. It's going to include a dinner. It's called Hope Explored. It's a great time to ask these kinds of questions. Easter is a good season to doubt your doubts. Not just let your doubts dictate what you should feel and believe, but interrogate those doubts. Consider whether your doubts are leading you down a path that leads to hope and joy and peace, or whether your doubts are leading you down into a dungeon of despair. Jesus gave Thomas a week to stew on his doubts. But thankfully, Jesus didn't leave him there. A week later, the disciples were meeting again, and this time Thomas was with them. This is a good hint that Thomas had friends who didn't leave him alone. They were patient with him. They kept loving him. They weren't embarrassed by his struggles. They persevered with him, and they got him to come back to church next week. It's a good thing he was there. Just like it's a good thing you are here right now. Because this is where Jesus likes to meet with his people. Jesus often shows up in surprising ways when we gather as believers. He comes among us in power, in grace, in mercy, to reveal himself to us, to assure us of his presence, to strengthen us with his love. And that's what he did for Thomas one week after Easter Sunday. Even though the doors were locked, once again, Jesus has no trouble getting in. And once again, the first words out of Jesus' mouth are words of peace. Peace to you. And then Jesus speaks directly to Thomas as if he had been reading his mind. He invites him to see for himself his nail-pierced hands. He invites him to put his hand into the puncture wound where the spear went into his side. And whether Thomas actually did that, we do not know. What we do know is that at this moment, Thomas recognized that this Jesus, who had been crucified, was now gloriously alive, and it changed everything. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. If the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, then nothing else matters. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then nothing matters more than this. Death is called the great devourer. Death's appetite is insatiable. Death's taste is unrefined. Death is a ruthless, relentless monster. It's always craving more. You cannot bribe death, you cannot bargain with death, plead with death, or charm death. Death knows no pity. It is the king of terrors, frightening everyone, and yet is frightened by no one. That is until the day when death met its match, finally. There stood before death one over whom death had no rights, one over whom death had no power, one who had the power of an indestructible life, Jesus, the son of David, God's Messiah, which means his anointed king. Jesus stood up to the Goliath called death. He gave himself up as a ransom for sinners. He yielded his head, his hands, his feet to the cruel torture of a cross. 
And death opened his mouth to swallow up Jesus, thinking this would be his most delicious victim ever. But Jesus, lying in that tomb, became death's poison, death's ruin, death's destruction. Death could not digest the bleeding Lamb of God. Death was forced to give up its victim, and the death of Jesus became the death of death. And that's what Thomas realizes as he sees this one who had been crucified now raised in everlasting life. He sees the scars in Jesus' hands and his side. And he realizes, I'm standing before the conqueror of man's greatest enemy, the one who triumphs over death. And instantly, the doubts that have been strangling his soul are vanquished. And he cries out with the most exalted confession of faith of anyone in the whole Gospel of John, my Lord and my God. No one else in John's Gospel, indeed in all four Gospels, directly calls Jesus God. They attribute deity to him, of course, but no one has risen this high. Thomas, the doubter, now gives to Jesus the highest adoration possible. He is Lord of all. He is God of the universe. And this is what John has been aiming for from the beginning of his gospel. What's the first verse in the gospel of John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. And then John tells us in John 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Now we see this apostle who lingered the longest in doubt and unbelief, reaching the highest in praise and adoration. And he doesn't just say to Jesus, you are Lord and you are God. He personalizes it. You are my Lord and my God. And in the service of his Lord and his God, Thomas will spend the rest of his life carrying his gospel all the way to the south of India, living for Jesus, dying for Jesus. And it was his scars that persuaded him of who Jesus really is. Friends, this is what makes the God of the Bible so unique, so supreme. Our God, the one and true God, has a scar story. He bears scars. He came into this world, and we did not receive him. We tried to silence his words. We tried to extinguish his light. We tried to exterminate his life. And he bears in his body the scars of our own rebellion and revolt against him. But as we sing, those scars are now rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. Those scars are beautiful to those who believe in Jesus. 
Because they testify to us the fact that our God is not distant from us in our pain and in our suffering. Listen, if you know anything about this life, you know you're not going to get through it unscathed. You're not going to get through this life unscarred. You're going to have physical scars. You're going to have emotional scars, mental scars that you will carry with you to the grave. But the God of Easter is the God who bears scars himself. And he is therefore able to come alongside us in our suffering and to weep with us and to comfort us and to assure us that we too will share in his resurrection glory. And our scar stories will become tales of his glorious redemption in the life to come. That's what makes our God so unique. So what will it take you to stop doubting and to believe? What will it take you to heed Jesus' words in verse 27? Don't be faithless, but believe. What will it take for you to stake your eternal future on him? What will it take for you to join with Thomas in confessing, my Lord and my God? Maybe you're thinking, if only I could have the experience Thomas had, then I would surely believe. But Jesus says there's an experience even better, even more blessed than what Thomas experienced. Look at what Jesus says in verse 29. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And in these words, Jesus is speaking not only to Thomas, he's speaking to you, he's speaking to me, he's speaking to millions of people who have not yet seen him physically, but have believed in him. And this is what Jesus is calling you and calling me to enter into today. It's our last scene, not seeing, yet believing. You see, in the world, seeing is believing. But in the Bible, believing is seeing. In the Bible, faith is not blind. In the Bible, unbelief is blind. God has given you two sets of eyes. There's the eyes in your heads with which you see physically, and there's the eyes of your heart with which you see spiritually. You don't need to see Jesus with the eyes in your head to believe in him today. You need to see him with the eyes of your heart. And if you do not yet see him with the eyes of your heart, the Bible says you're blind. You're blind spiritually. But the Bible also says that God is a God who gives sight to the blind. And God can give sight to you today. Millions of people today, though they do not yet see Jesus with the eyes in their heads, they believe in him with the eyes of their hearts, and they love him, and they rejoice in him with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And I want to tell you, friends, that's my story. I haven't yet seen Jesus physically, but I know him, and I believe in him, and I love him with all my heart 
and I am longing for the day when I will see him face to face, but I can see him now. I can see him because the eyes of my heart have been opened to believe and to adore him. That's my experience of Jesus. And that can be yours too. And John tells us how it can be your experience in the last two verses of this chapter. Look at verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Did you hear that? These are written in this book so that you may believe with the eyes of your heart. Jesus' preferred way of revealing himself to people is not by appearing to them the way he appeared to Thomas. Jesus' preferred way is to show himself to us in this book that has been written. Because it's a living book. It It reveals a living Savior to us. And when you meet Jesus in the words of this book, you can encounter him every day at any time. You can meet with Jesus at three in the morning when your thoughts are so troubled and anxious you can't sleep at night. He will meet with you in the pages of this book. You can have an encounter with Jesus when you're in the hospital about ready to be rolled into surgery. He can meet with you in the pages of this book and remind you of his presence. You can meet with Jesus before you go to work in the morning in this book. You can meet with him at noontime in your lunch period. Anytime, at any day, you can meet with Jesus, the living Jesus, in the pages of this book. And he's met with us today. He's revealed himself today as the Lord who loves us to death, the Lord who is stronger than death, the Lord and giver of everlasting life. He is offering his everlasting life to you today in this book, in these words. Can you hear him calling you? Stop doubting. Don't be faithless, but believe. If you want to respond to the call of Jesus, we're going to pray a prayer now together that enables you to say to Jesus what Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. This could be your moment where the eyes of your heart are opened to the glory of who Jesus is. Your time to respond to the risen Christ. Church, I'm gonna invite you to join with me in praying this prayer aloud as we pray, take time, take time to respond to the word, to the call of Jesus. Let's say this together. Lord Jesus, thank you for speaking to me in your word today. Thank you for being patient with me in my doubts and fears. Thank you for coming into this dark world and being willing to bear the scars of my sin. Thank you for dying for me and for rising from the dead to give me eternal life. Lord Jesus, today I confess, you are my Lord and my God. I do believe in you. Please conquer the unbelief that lingers and give me life in your name. Amen.